Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. Yes, that could mean you too. The workouts have been designed to fit into your life so you can move when you can. The 15 minutes you can squeeze in before work. The 20 minutes you get to yourself while the baby naps. The half hour you can spare at lunch. There's a routine for you no matter what your day looks like. A reminder as well, this is included in your Mum Mia subscription. If you are a Mum Mia subscriber, you already have access to Move. Download the Move app and log in with your Mum Mia login. Head to move.mamamia.com.au and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. It's safe to say the lead-up to this year's Australian Open isn't going smoothly. The fate of the Australian Open is on a knife's edge this morning after two charter flights carrying players and staff were found to have COVID-positive cases on board. The Australian Open has been plunged into further chaos with passengers on a third charter flight forced in hard lockdown. The event, set to start on February 8, has been upended, with more than 70 players finding themselves in isolation without the ability to train outside their hotel rooms after people on their flights into Melbourne ended up testing positive to COVID-19. The events of the past few days have had many questioning why it was greenlit in the first place and why it was deemed okay when there are so many risks to both the health of Australians and the players on the tour. Today, we find out the thinking behind Tennis Australia's decision to hold this tournament and what it now means for the careers of professional athletes locked in their rooms. Remember the Australian Open last year? Sophia Kennan won her first Grand Slam title, becoming the only other American woman besides the legend that is Serena Williams to win the tournament since Jennifer Capriati in 2002. From the moment she was a little girl, Sophia Kennan believed that this may be her destiny. Over in the men's draw, Novak Djokovic held the trophy aloft for the eighth time, defending his title and becoming the first man to win Grand Slam titles across three decades. It was a simpler time, a time when we only had bushfires to contend with. The smoke from blazers in eastern Victoria wafting over the courts at Melbourne Park. Slovenian player Dalila Jukopovic suffering a coughing fit halfway through a match before collapsing. Some matches were cancelled. Djokovic, who was then the president of the ATP Player Council, saying the Open should have been delayed. Well, he got his wish. This Australian Open has been delayed. The tournament, normally played in January, will kick off on February 8 due to the global pandemic. And the logistics of bringing 1,200 players and their teams on 15 charter flights while adhering to coronavirus restrictions into Australia has been tricky. Tennis Australia has been working for the last eight months to make this all happen. There's been, I think, 15 planes from around the world that have flown in. We've got 1,250 people. That includes 1,200 people, players, officials, quarantining, and then we've got 50 in Adelaide who are quarantining. And on the ground, actually, there's about 1,500 people involved in making it very safe and super tight, the quarantine process. The Victorian Police Minister, Lisa Neville, said last week it's the strictest quarantine process in the world, and I can tell you that's the case. So those 1,500 people, that might include marshals in the hallways of the hotels, bus drivers, people on the courts to make it safe. So, you know, they basically don't have any communication or connection with other humans 
other than themselves and their training partners. So it's been a very complicated process, a logistical process, but we're getting there. That's Tennis Australia spokesperson Luke Dennehy. Since the plane loads of players and entourages started arriving in Melbourne last week, more than 70 players have had to go into isolation without the modified privileges for training after six people on those planes tested positive to COVID-19. One of them is a player whose name hasn't been released. Some claim this wasn't what they were told would happen if this scenario arose. Swiss world number 12, Belinda Bencic, tweeting, We made our decision to come here from rules that were sent to us. Then we arrived and received information slash rulebook with more slash new rules that we did not know about. She went on to say, We are not complaining about quarantine. We're complaining because of unequal practice slash playing conditions before quite important tournaments. Romanian Sarana Kirstia tweeted that she wouldn't have come to Australia had she known the rules beforehand. Her request to return home has been denied. However, fellow player Artem Sitak says the players were made aware of the rules on a conference call last month, a call many of the players failed to attend. This was backed up by fellow player Alani Caljon. We had a call with Tennis Australia about a month ago and not a lot of players were on that call they told us the risks that we're going to be undertaking. And they did mention that if somebody tests positive on the flight, it's going to be up to the health uh, authority to decide whether to quarantine all the flight or just isolate the compartments of the plane. Now, in our case, where the flight attendant was tested positive, of course, the whole plane has to be quarantined. So knowing the very, very strict rules of Australian government regarding the virus, After that call, in my mind, I knew that if for some reason somebody tested positive on the plane, I'm going to have to quarantine for 14 days. So I was prepared to take that risk. Nick McCarville is a US tennis commentator who was on one of the flights from LAX with players like Victoria Azarenka, where someone tested positive to COVID-19. He says he believes the frustration came from not being prepared for what was about to happen. I think in any situation in life, and I think we've all learned this in the last year with COVID-19, is it's tough when you go into one situation with expectations, and they're quite different when you arrive. You know, I was kind of waving farewell to the players when we got to the hotel from the bus because I knew I was in two weeks of hard lockdown. You know, I'm a commentator. I'm here as media I knew that I was going to see only the outside from the inside for two weeks. But for them, I think that it took those few days. And we obviously saw the media outrage and frustration, I think, from the public, especially here in Melbourne, with Victoria having gone through the lockdowns that it had and seeing these players sort of vent their frustrations on social media. I think that it was whiplash for everyone. And I think now in the last few days from the folks that I've spoken with from, you know, there's an agent across the hall from me, a player agent who I'm WhatsApping with. And I I can hear a player who's actually going out to practice safely each day being escorted that way. It seems like the vibe and you can feel that on social media, bar a a few um, Bernard Tomic posts. Otherwise, I think the players have, you know, really digested this situation, the seriousness of it. And that's not excusing, I don't think, a lot of what we've seen on social media. But I also think that we're all human. And I think we're trying to meet this very tough, you know, once in a lifetime situation with sort of a human perspective. 
in one sense, it almost felt like Victoria was, you know, waiting and hoping and wanting for things to go perfectly. But that was never going to be the case. You had 1,200 people coming in for an international sporting event. And so to only have the six cases, I think that they've actually gotten through pretty well. And so when you look at perspective, you know, of other people of other countries, I mean, this is kind of a scenario that for us Americans, we could only dream of to have an event like this. You know, at the U.S. Open in September, I worked as a commentator there as well. And I think I counted 75 people in the stadium to watch Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka's semifinal. You know, this blockbuster Saturday night under the lights, U.S. Open, and it's Vika, Serena, and there's 75 people. And so I say all of that because I, I think that the international perspective with COVID has been quite different. And, you know, hats off to this government, to the country, you guys have been through it. And so I, I think, you know, seeing the reaction and seeing the, the players and the frustration and maybe some of the out of touch statements and the videos and the complaints, and these are young people, you know, these are teenagers, these are people in their 20s, that's not excusing their behavior at all. But I think that it, it's kind of been cast from the international perspective of it's not necessarily going smoothly for the Australian Open. But I think the world's watching right now in Australia. And, and my hope and I think my gut says that this is that bumpy landing and that it, it hopefully not necessarily smooth sailing, but that it's going to be a, a great summer of tennis. Now we're being flooded with Instagram and Twitter posts of players in lockdown, some trying to do their best to train in the limited space, some, like Kazakhstan's Yulia Pachinsova, requesting a relocation after a mouse set up home in her hotel room. Bernard Tomic has been playing World of Warcraft for up to 11 hours straight. And lucky their neighbours are all from the tour because they have to hear this all hours of the day and night. Luke, when you read the comments under the stories being written about what's been happening in the lead up to this tournament, from Melburnians in particular, who are upset that they made some serious sacrifices to ensure that COVID-19 was stamped out, only to have it potentially be brought back in by players and their staff, do you think they have a point here? We can understand from Tennis Australia's perspective why people feel this, because the reality is we had that huge lockdown, and I lived through it myself, and I think there's quite a bit of trauma around that. and. You know, no one wants to go back to that because it was awful. And, you know, we're living a fantastic life now compared to overseas with zero COVID cases. So what I will say is, yeah, we do understand everyone's concerns, but I can assure you nothing is left unturned to make it safe. And I think it's working already. The fact that Andy Murray couldn't get on the plane because he tested positive. And Madison Keys, another top female player, she couldn't get on the plane from America because she tested positives. And we do have, I think, six cases out of the 1,250 at the moment, which I we always expected some cases, but I think that's pretty low. And those cases are now in a health hotel, what they say. So, and they'll be treated like every other person who comes back from overseas. So, you know, we do understand everyone's concern, but I can assure you the safety is paramount. And I don't think we would do it. And the Victorian government, let's be honest, you know, they're very strict with their lockdowns and they have been in the past. So if our chief health officer, Brett Sutton, and he didn't think it was safe, it wouldn't happen. Well, can you talk to me about the discussions that were happening before the decision was made for the tournament to go ahead? What was the deciding factor that finally gave it the yes? There was lots of different scenarios they were planning. One was a tournament with no crowds at all. 
The second was to cancel the tournament. And the third is where we're at now with 25% of fans and hopefully that might go up. But I think if I had to say why they said yes, because uh, I think the tournament brings so much to Australia, not only economically, you know, I'm a Melbourne, I've been going for 30 years, it's part of our culture, it's part of our psyche, it's a very important part of the Melbourne suburbs. And I think if anything, we can show the rest of the world that we can do a major event in Australia safely. And that's an imperative word, it has to be safe. And, you know, all the benefits that come with that, I'm thinking of, you know, the cafes in the city, there's so many chefs and hospitality ventures on site, which leads to jobs for suppliers and things like that. So there's a a chain of events, you know, that everyone is supported by the Australian Open. So I think the benefits of having the event safely, of course, are just so fantastic for Victoria. So I think the decision was made to go ahead. But I mean, it's been an interesting one because there's issues that come up every day because when we approved the tournament, we didn't have those cases in the Blackrock cluster in, in Melbourne and the Sydney cases and the borders were open. So it was a different environment, but I still think they've definitely made the right decision. Well, you mentioned that crowd capacity is at 25%. What measures are being taken to make sure, because we, we know very clearly what's going on with the players and their crew, what's being done to make sure that that 25% capacity crowd is safe? going to look like a different tournament this year. So when you usually come to the Australian Open, you can freely walk around the whole site at Melbourne Park, but there's going to be three zones. So the Rod Laver Arena Zone, the Margaret Court Arena Zone and the John Kane Arena Zones. What it means is the precinct's basically split into three zones when you buy a ticket to each of those zones and there's a certain amount of courts for each zones and you can't leave the zone your tickets buy. So it's about contract tracing. If there was a COVID case, everyone will know what zone you're in and you'll check in when you get in. All the tickets are electronic and also with all the food and drinks and all that, it's all click and collect, excuse me, and QR technology. So there's going to be lots of check-ins, just like you might do at a restaurant, but just think about that going to a major event. So it will look very different. There's been a lot of discussion about what exactly the players were told would happen to them on arrival should someone on their plane test positive for COVID-19. Can you just confirm for us what exactly they were told and when? Yeah, so there's been lots of communications. Craig Tiley, our CEO, had meetings with, Zoom meetings with all the players. Sometimes not all the players would sign on, so maybe there's been a bit of a miscommunication there, but he made it clear that they were all aware that if you were a close contact of someone who tested positive, and that's what's happened with the three planes that have had positive cases, you would have to isolate. So there has been lots of communications. I think, you know, with so many people and so many issues, maybe the message didn't get us through to a few of them. But I think, you know, we've had teething problems now, but I think it's hopefully now that they're all here, they're in day four, we can all move on and help them out and we can all come out and have a great tournament. Many of the players have now backtracked on their original complaints. French star Elise Cornet saying she didn't understand what Victorians had gone through last year and so didn't realise her comments were offensive. Former Aussie player turned coach Roger Rashid told The Project that two weeks in hotel quarantine for a professional athlete shouldn't completely derail their tournament. 
You're going to be dictated by your emotions through the course of the two weeks, so just how you deal with it. So a program in play, don't panic about what's happening on the other side once you come out in two weeks because the preparation should have been there. When I was young, you know, my parents couldn't afford the extra gravy on top really, so I would use the bed base to actually do weights, to do press-ups, I'd use chairs for core activity. There's definitely ways, and they've got great views as well. Some of the players, have, you know, they're, they're, they're looking over the CBD of Melbourne as well and Albert Park, so it's not too bad and you can make your way. But Georgian player Oksana Kalashnikova told the ABC there will definitely be a disadvantage for those in isolation. Obviously, the other players will have advantage because we can't really have the same amount of hours of practice. You can't just go and jump in and do the same amount of hours. Tennis Australia has ruled out reducing the men's matches to three sets to take into account the reduction in endurance experienced by those who weren't allowed out to train. Luke says they are doing everything they can, but they need the players to understand what it is they're facing at the Australian Open this year. I think we're all still working through those issues, but I think players have to be a bit flexible, and this is a once-in-a-generation tournament. Hopefully it will never be like this again. So, yes, maybe some may think it's unfair, but we've just got to play with the situation. And also, the prize money is very lucrative, so it's good for them to come. It's $100,000 for the loser. So I think a lot of people will probably say, well, you know, that's worth it. (laughs) You know, sitting in a hotel room for 14 days, whether the conditions are different for some and different for others, yeah, I'm sure that's just maybe a reality of it and the situation we're in. But the fact that we can actually have the tournament despite what's going on in that 14-hard lockdown probably overrides that. For those that say this Australian Open will be unfairly weighted in favour of those who can get out of their rooms to train, Victoria Azarenka tweeted a message for them. She says, excuses will always be there for you. Opportunity won't. That's all for the quickie today. If you're keen to send us some feedback, we'd love to hear it. Let us know what you think of the show by rating and reviewing us in your favourite podcast app. This episode was produced by Siobhan Moran-McFarlane and myself, Claire Murphy, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.